today on Ag News Daily. A lot of surrogates coming through. You've got to you've got to make your voice heard uh, when they come through. Don't let, don't let them off with a pass and, and say the right thing and you know give a sound bite. You know push them on the issue. Good afternoon, everyone. It's Ashton Carr on the podcast today with Mike Pearson. Mike, how are you doing today? Not too bad at all, Ashton. Not too bad at all. We got a lot of things happening in the world of agriculture. And in fact, a big issue has been brewing related to this administration's EPA and their treatment of biofuels. We'll be digging into that with our interview folks. So stay tuned. Right, Ashton? Absolutely. What headlines are you following today before we get into that interview? Well, great question. Uh, there's there's a lot of things happening today. Uh, one of the bigger issues that, of course, the ag industry has been following quite closely are the lawsuits against Bayer related to the potential of Roundup to cause non-Hodgkin's Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, this, of course, has been going on for two years. We saw some very, very large verdicts returned against Bayer early on that resulted in the establishment of a class action lawsuit. And this has been plaguing Bayer really ever since they purchased Monsanto. And it looks like it is starting to come to an end. Bayer came to an agreement earlier today with the largest of the class action suits. There are currently still about 25% of the folks that have filed cases aren't signed on to this one, but the judge thinks they will eventually settle on this case. Bayer has agreed to pay almost $10 billion to settle these cases. That's billion with a B. And a reminder to all of our listeners, there's really only one semi-governmental body that concludes that uh, Roundup may be a cancer-causing uh, thing, carcinogen, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Every other organization in the world says it isn't, but that uh, didn't matter in court. And uh, Bayer has said they want this thing to go away, so they're willing to write checks. According to the New York Times, individuals, depending on the strength of their cases, will receive payments between $5,000 and $250,000 as a port, as a part, rather, of this settlement. So getting that in the rearview mirror will be good news for Bayer. And uh, I guess we'll just have to see how this thing really shakes out long term. Will this cause Bayer to change its marketing of Monsanto here in the United States? I guess time will tell, Ashton. Absolutely, Mike. And Delaney and I talked a little bit about this yesterday, but I hadn't seen anything kind of rounding it out, I guess, this morning. So I'm glad that you brought that up. But in other news, I'm following a checklist that was recently put out by the CDC to help agricultural employees to use this checklist to mitigate the spread of COVID-19 on agricultural operations. And so this checklist has five sections and um, I don't, I'm not going to go through all of the sections because it is a little bit lengthy with all the parts and pieces, but it's definitely interesting because of all the spread I think going on through meat packing plants. And I haven't really heard anything about other agricultural operations, but it is nice to know that the CDC is looking out for our agricultural employees as we are trying to round out COVID-19 and stop the spread of it. Um, beyond wearing masks and maintaining social distancing, are there any recommendations that uh, farms should really be taking advantage of? 
Yes. So on on section two of the plan, it's a control plan based on the hierarchy of controls. And so within section two, it talks about screening and monitoring workers, managing sick workers, addressing return to work after worker exposure to COVID-19, engineering controls, cleaning, disinfection and sanitation, administrative controls and PPE equipment. And so I think they just go through really cleaning and disinfecting areas, which I think has been a little bit not ignored because I've definitely seen restaurants and things like that really working on cleaning and disinfecting and closing early to really get in there and sanitize the area. But I think they're focusing a little bit more on the workspace as a whole and not just wearing protective equipment. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Got to make sure we keep everything clean. And COVID, of course, still massive concerns around this virus, both domestically and internationally. I've got two stories I want to hit on just because they tie together. The first, domestic concerns. We saw crude oil prices collapse today. As of midday, prices were down about 6%. Of course, we are seeing a little bit of bounce as we get into the early afternoon. But the concerns are mounting that folks are going to drive less. I saw some data out of the city of Houston. Of course, Texas is one of those states that is seeing spice, uh, cases spike, along with Florida, North Carolina, and several other predominantly southern states, which is interesting. A lot of folks thought that the warm weather might help uh, alleviate COVID, but it turns out really warm weather just drives people indoors, where they're in much closer contact with others, and there is some thought, I don't know how well researched, but that is perhaps contributing to this spike in cases. But uh, folks are also concerned that people are going to be driving less. And the data out of Houston showed that restaurant bookings have already started to fall significantly and that hourly workers are being scheduled less after a post-COVID outbreak peak just two weeks ago. So we're seeing oil prices collapse. That will weigh on ethanol prices. Ethanol production was up 6.5% week over week, still down substantially from a year ago, but it was definitely moving in the right direction for our corn-growing friends. That's the COVID stuff domestically. Internationally, we had kind of an interesting curveball thrown at the markets earlier this morning, I suppose late last night when it came out of China. Um, grain traders in Chicago reported that China is requiring exports of soybeans to come with a signed declaration that those products are free from coronavirus. Uh, so far, the Chinese have asked the U.S. Uh, exporters to do this, Canadian and Brazilian exporters, and none of the grain industry exporters have responded. They're all waiting either on... Uh, further guidance from USDA or Canada's Ag Department or the Ag Department of Brazil and uh, hoping to kind of get some light shed on it. We don't know what the repercussions would be if an agreement is signed and it's later found that COVID somehow did come across on a soybean. So this is all uh, very strange, to say the least. However, the Chinese also did this same thing in the meat industry. And U.S. meat producers, Tyson in particular, have uh, gone ahead and made some concessions to Chinese importers. Uh, Tyson signed a letter saying it stands behind everything that's produced and that it is being shipped without COVID. Several other meat producers say they're willing to comply with uh, WHO requirements. And in Brazil, most of the Brazilian meat processors have already gone ahead and signed declarations that their exports will be COVID-free when they head into China. Now, this is interesting because they did that today. And also today, it was ordered by the government of Brazil that JBS, of course, the, uh, the big Brazilian meat packer, 
has to test all of its workers at one plant in Rio Grande do Sul for COVID-19 because that outbreak is ongoing. So I, all of this is very confusing. We don't know what this is going to mean for the export markets, whether China is just looking for a way to, if exports must be canceled once they hit the border due to coronavirus, maybe signing these declarations will give them a cause to go back and maybe get their money back on these uh, purchases. It's all very strange. We're going to keep an eye on the story and see how it develops. And on the grain side in particular, since China continues to be avid buyers of new crop soybeans, whether or not there will be some follow through on this. Yeah, you know, Mike, this is definitely something that I've been following previously in the week. Um, but all the news that I've heard um, Monday and Tuesday, it was all based on meat, which I guess I can kind of see where you would be concerned about spreading coronavirus since it's, I, I guess, like more on raw meat. I don't, I don't really know. It's kind of like not processing in my brain because I also read an article today about the soybeans for from China wanting to be COVID free. And it said that most international authorities say there's no evidence that the coronavirus can be transmitted from food to people. So I really, I, I understand that they would be concerned, obviously, because COVID-19, it's a pandemic, obviously. But I don't understand why they would be so concerned since there's evidence showing that there's, there's no evidence showing that it can be transmitted from food to people. But I guess we're just going to see how it all plays out. Yeah, yeah. What it all means is certainly a question that I'm guessing a lot of folks in both the grain and meat industries will be asking their Chinese compatriots over the next several weeks. Ashton, do you have any other headlines you're keeping an eye on today? I do. So I read an article this morning about a large cloud of dust coming from the Sahara Desert over in Africa and how it's moving across parts of the U.S. this week. And so being in Lubbock, I'm very used to all the dust and clouds and all that good stuff rolling through, but it said that some of the dust could reach the southern corn belt, but there's not much concern over health impacts to crops, animals, or humans. So Mike, if it reaches up there to you, you're going to have to let me know if you see your first haboob, as we call them down here. Well, it's interesting. So I've also been reading about this, and Ashton, you may not know this, but I used to live in Phoenix, Arizona, and have been through a haboob, which I just wanted to throw that story in there because it gave me an excuse to say the word haboob on the podcast. Absolutely. And I talked about haboobs last week with um, Brent Carlson and Landon Nolan on the Dryline Farmer podcast, and we just thought it was really funny. So it, uh, since it's not really a big worry to the impact of crops, animals, or humans, I, I thought it was a really kind of uplifting, funny little bit to include in our midweek episode. Absolutely. And I think it should be noted before we get folks excited about surviving their first sandstorm that this Saharan dust probably won't look anything like a haboob. It will basically be a faint dust cloud in the sky. However, places that do get it should see phenomenal sunsets, at least according to the few people I've talked about who seem to be knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. Absolutely, Mike. If you see any good sunsets, you'll have to snap a picture and we might feature it on our social media. Excellent, folks. Find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. All of that out of the way, Ashton Carr, what do you think? Should we hit the markets before we have our conversation about what is going on in the renewable fuels industry? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right, folks. And markets were lower today across the board with front month class three milk, really the only exception, moving higher. In the corn market, July corn was down three quarters of a cent at 
324 and a quarter. December new crop down three. Closed the day at 333 and three quarters. Over in soybeans, the July contract was down four and a quarter at 870 and three quarters. November new crop dropped four cents even to finish at 870 even. In wheat, the sell-off continues. July Chicago down four and three quarters at 481 and a quarter. December down four and three quarters as well to close at 494 even. Over in the livestock markets, there's mixed trade early to start the day. However, it eroded as the day went on. August live cattle dropped 85 cents at 96.35. The October contract down 25 to finish at 99.62.50. Feeder cattle also lower on the day. The August contract down 32.5 at 132.87.50. September down 30 cents even, closed at 134.17.50. And in lean hogs, more pressure today. That is not a pretty looking chart, as we discussed with Darren Newsom on Monday. July lean hogs down 97 and a half cents at 45.92.50. The August down $1.25 at 51.25. And dairy jumping over into class three milk that June contract up a penny. Finished today at 21.01. However, the rally is reversing in the deferred months. July, class three milk down 75 cents on the day closed at 21.56. Without further ado, let's dig in to what is happening in DC at the EPA around all of these requests for exemptions from oil refineries. Hey guys, in case you didn't know, when I'm not here hosting Ag News Daily, I'm helping out with the Iowa Farm Bureau's Spokesman Speaks podcast. If you're from Iowa, you're probably familiar with the Spokesman newspaper, which has the largest readership of any ag newspaper in the state of Iowa. The Spokesman Speaks podcast is an extension of that newspaper, reaching farmers and ag professionals on the go with the stories that matter most. In this week's episode, we have Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag talking about state COVID-19 assistance for livestock farmers. We also have Chris Norton, a former college football player who experienced a paralyzing injury on the field and was once given a 3% chance of regaining movement below his neck. Well, Chris beat the odds to walk again, and his inspiring story has plenty of lessons that we could all use right now. You can find and subscribe to the Spokesman Speaks podcast in your favorite podcast app, or go to iowafarmbureau.com slash podcast. Well, folks, for today's podcast, we're going to continue the discussion we have been having about biofuels usage in this country to help us make sense of everything that is going on right now. We are joined by Kurt Kovark, who is the Vice President of Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Glad to be with you today, Mike. You know, one of the things we really wanted to discuss today is the 52 gap year small refinery exemption waivers or petitions that are being requested from the EPA. We've heard this. We've seen these headlines floating around for about a week now, perhaps a little bit more than that. And bring our listeners up to speed. For folks who aren't connected to the biofuels industry, we've talked about SREs quite a bit, but what's the significance of this particular move here by the refining industry? Yeah, great question. And there is a lot of depth to it, so I'll I'll do my best. So under the Renewable Fuel Standard, the, the program that Congress passed and created in 2007 that requires increasing amount of biofuels, there was a provision to allow uh, small refiners hardship exemptions if uh, it was viewed that they were suffering from disproportionate economic hardship in effort to comply with the program. Now, there was, there was no opposition to these waivers uh, in the years under, the, under President Obama. 
they were uh, anywhere from you know five to ten or a dozen or so per year for some of the smallest uh, refiners. When this administration came in under President Trump, uh, particularly the previous administrator, Administrator Pruitt of the uh, EPA, those levels of small refiner exemptions skyrocketed uh, into the twenties and, and thirties for recent years. Uh, so what the what that means is. Uh, biofuels volumes were undermined. While EPA was setting the annual volume that was required to be blended, every one of these exemptions to a small refiner meant that that volume was actually going down, reduced demand for biodiesel, uh, lower prices, etc. So we had a court case out in, uh, in Colorado in the 10th Circuit. A handful of biofuels producers challenged three of these particular small refiner exemptions, and the, the court decided unanimously in favor of the biofuels producers on on a a series of grounds. First was that the law provided exemptions of, or I'm sorry, continuation of exemptions that previously existed. What this EPA was doing was granting new exemptions uh, where they never existed before. And the court said, no, the statute was very clear that they were only to be granted extensions of existing exemptions. So one would argue that uh, you would have had to have an exemption going back to 2011 to be able to receive one in 2017 or 2018 or 2019. But this EPA disregarded that. The court said you're wrong um, and basically has invalidated those, any uh, small refiner exemption that has not been continuously exempted. So we would view that as a, a very positive step, ending the loophole of small refiner exemptions and the undermining of the volumes. But what has this EPA done and, and how have they responded to this court. It, it, it appears as though they're working with the refiners to file exemptions for all of the years between 2011 and, 2000 and, and 20, uh, 2020 to basically provide now granting small refiner exemptions so that they can have continuity and completely skirt the, the decision of this court. It's, it's, I, I mean, it's so hard to imagine and comprehend National Biodiesel Board this week is hosting a virtual fly-in. We would typically have our uh, members out here in Washington, D.C., meeting with folks on Capitol Hill. We're doing Zoom meetings this week, uh, today in particular. I've had four already this morning. Each of those four offices, three of which are Republican, are shocked at what EPA is up to in trying to undermine the decision of the Tenth Circuit Court and go so far out of line, violation of the statute, to kowtow to uh, refiners to help them avoid their obligation under the renewable fuel standard. And what that means is less biofuels, less uh, income to farmers, less rural economic development, you know, less clean air, uh, and, and high, bigger dependence on foreign oil. So that's what, that's what our EPA is up to. It is absolutely brazen. So I hadn't heard it explained in quite that way. I just want to recap it because this is so bizarre. Basically, these refineries that were given exemptions in 2018, 2019, and 2020 are and that weren't awarded exemptions prior are now going back in time and they're filing exemptions going back almost 10 years so they can say that these have been extensions of an original filing that wasn't filed until 2020, but they're saying dates back to 2011. Is that correct? You're you're exactly right. We're all hopping in our DeLorean. We're going to go back to 2011, 2012. They're now going to argue that they were suffering disproportionate economic hardship in those years and either failed to request a, a waiver, or they there may be some cases where where 
small refiners waivers were rejected, denied, and they're now uh, refiling them in the hopes that this EPA will reconsider them, grant them, so that they can continue now to get exemptions going forward. It, it's if it, if you read it in a book, you'd say, well, this this couldn't possibly be true. But that's what's happening here in Washington D.C. with this uh, EPA administrator. Now, when we talk about these SREs, the conversation in the ag media, in the mainstream media, and we're just as guilty of this as anybody, has predominantly centered on corn-based ethanol. But of course, biodiesel is certainly impacted by this as well. Can you give us some numbers? What have you seen as far as production interruptions caused by the expansion of SREs under this administration? And what would your projections show if these 52 waivers are granted? Well, what we know based on uh, waivers granted for 2016, 2017, and 2018 under this administration when they ramped up uh, refinery exemptions, our loss of gallons is somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 600 million gallons in total. Now, our industry right now is about our, our volume obligation with EPA is 2.43 billion gallons. Our total uh, market might be 2.8 or 2.9 billion gallons. So when you consider six, five, six hundred million gallons off the top of that, that's that's a significant amount. And you know, it would be one thing if if we all knew it and the market could have an opportunity to respond to it. But many of these waivers are granted uh, in secret. The only the only individual who knows that that waiver is being granted is the refiner themselves. So now suddenly they're in a more advantageous market position where they know that that RVO that was set for the year isn't actually 2.43. It's significantly less because they just got an exemption. So they're going to, what are they going to do in that marketplace? They're going to take economic advantage. So not only does it take opportunities away from soybean farmers, uh, growers, and biodiesel producers, it, it tilts the favor to the refiners who are the only ones who happen to know that these uh, small refiner waivers are even being granted. So it's, it does double injury. It's incredible. It's it's so frustrating. And Kurt, you're in D.C. You interact with the EPA quite a bit. When you think about how this is going to play out or how this has played out over the past several years, what has changed at EPA from obviously it's a new administration, we went from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. But why? My understanding, I could be completely, uh, you know, uh, mis- uh, understanding how things work in D.C., my understanding is most of the crew at EPA is fairly consistent. It comes from the top. It comes from the the leadership at the EPA itself, and uh, it comes from the folks who surround the president. If you you look back to last fall, we had a a long negotiation with a handful of Republican senators who believe they had a deal with this president. They walked out, and the EPA administrator said, no, 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 that's not the deal we struck. This is the deal we struck. So, What's the most frustrating about this, Mike, is that we we have called on Republican members of Congress so much to help us out, and we are in this case as well, to try to convince this administration that they're doing harm to farmers and biofuels producers. But at the end of the day, unless you get the ear of the president, the people who work for him are going to do what they want to do regardless of what this president tells them. The president can stand on the stage and say, you know, I'm, I stand with the RFS. I strongly support the great patriot American farmer, but then his EPA will go and do the exact opposite. It's enormously frustrating, and I'm sure it's frustrating for our advocates on the Hill, Senator Grantsley, Senator Ernst, others, who constantly have to call on the president himself, because if you have the conversation with his uh, folks in his administration, 
uh, it doesn't move the needle. They're, it, it does, they don't seem to be working on behalf of what this president himself said he is for and he supports. Well, I think that is a crucial distinction right there, that breakdown between the president's words and then the administration's actions for growers, for producers, for biofuel industry uh, participants out here in the heartland who are being impacted by these policies. It, it's an election year. This is typically the time where voices can be heard or at least said they're being heard. How should or how can folks with a stake in this industry hopefully change the needle or change the direction of the way things are going at EPA? Is there somebody we could all call and then make our displeasure noted? What do you recommend? Uh, two things. Uh, first, I would say anybody who has uh, the interest of the, the ag community and the biofuels industry in mind should get in touch with their legislators and let them know that this is happening, what this administration is doing to them and how it's going to harm them and ask them to act. Secondly, you know, depending on what, what state you're in, a lot of the Midwestern states are right now toss-up states in the presidential election, which means we're going to have a lot of uh, candidates coming through. We're going to have a lot of surrogates coming through. You've got you've to make your voice heard uh, when they come through. Don't let, don't let them off with a pass and, and say the right thing and, you know, give a soundbite. You know, push them on the issue because, quite frankly, that's what it's going to take. And, you know, I think this president pays attention to, to polls. He pays attention to... Uh, his favorability ratings. I'm sure he's looking at states like Iowa and Wisconsin and, and Minnesota as opportunities and maybe is questioning whether those voters are going to side with him again. Make this a priority. Make this an issue that uh, uh, the president is aware of so that he understands that, you know, going against Iowa's farmers or, or Midwestern agriculture and biofuels producers is going to cost him at the polls. That's the only way they're going to respond. Now, Kurt, let's assume that EPA does the right thing and refuses to grant these waivers, these exemptions and, and these extensions, rather, going back to 2011. Uh, we still have an issue of, of mobility in this country. People just aren't traveling as much as they used to. When you look ahead to the future of this industry, let's assume that EPA actually adheres to the spirit and the letter of the decision from the Tenth Circuit. Where do you see biodiesel demand going throughout the rest of 2020 and on into 2021? Are you guys broadly hoping for a recovery? We are. We are absolutely uh, expecting recovery uh, because you know the the downturn in the economy, while it while it impacted uh, consumers and gasoline demand quite significantly, it was less significant in the in the diesel sector, primarily because of long haul trucking. A lot of those same industries and heavy heavy uh, duty industries. They they never stopped or or only stopped a little bit. So our our uh, reduction is is uh, le much less significant than t to ethanol, and we anticipate. You know, I'm hopeful that we're not in a in a 12 month or 24 month recession. That would obviously be harmful, and I don't think that's going to happen uh, once we get the health crisis behind us. Uh, and then we're we're poised for growth, and we're we act in a in a segment of the economy that's you know there's a lot there's a drive towards replacing it with electric or, or uh, uh, elect primarily electrification. We're in a sector of the economy where, you know, it could be 50 years off, if ever, that we see ele electrification of heavy-duty equipment or long-haul trucking. So uh, we view us as a biodiesel as a solution that's here uh, a now, today, that can, that can grow significantly. We've got a lot of waste oils and surplus uh, uh, fats that can be converted into biodiesel to help the rural economy, help clean the air, uh, lower carbon emissions. So we, we view the, the future of this industry as being very bright.
Excellent. Well, Kurt, I know the National Biodiesel Board does a great job getting information out there to folks. We appreciate you coming on the podcast. If our listeners want to dig in a little more detail to everything that's going on in that sector, where can they go to get more information? NBB.org is our website. You'll find all of our uh, material and uh, information uh, on the internet. Fantastic. Well, Kurt Kovark, President of, excuse me, Vice President of Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Glad to be with you. Thanks again to Kurt from the National Biodiesel Board to, for coming on the podcast to talk to us about that. It was definitely interesting to sit in on that conversation, Mike, because like you, I think I interpreted it a little bit differently. And so it was nice to get a little more information about what's going on in the world of ethanol and biofuels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable what the uh, the oil industry is trying there. Now, it's shocking. It's shocking, I think, to a lot of our listeners that the oil industry is finding such good friends in this administration. Very depressing. Folks, take action. If you're in the uh, the biofuels industry, these uh, these decisions will have far-reaching impact on our prices, especially as we try to find a rebound in demand after this coronavirus. In the meantime, if you want to get caught up on any of our past episodes, visit our website. Go to agnewsdaily.com and, of course, follow us on social media at agnewsdaily on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. With that, Ashton, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.